Now, there are some key things here when it comes to the crucifixion and the burial and the, the resurrection of Yeshua that we need to think spatially now on the map where this all would have taken place. There's a, a few different theories as to where that took place. And during the Middle Ages, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the Crusaders went in and determined about right here is going to be the, the, the crucifixion site of the Messiah, of Yeshua of Nazareth. And then they put a shrine there, and that shrine grew and grew and grew and grew, and it is now called uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. And you can go there to this day, and you can see uh, that perhaps that's one theory there. Then there's another theory that maybe he was crucified out here on the Mount of Olives. Some people like that theory. Then there's another theory that uh, he was crucified out here on a hilltop uh, that looks a lot like a skull. I'm going to show you a picture of it uh, right here. This is the face of the skull. You can see the eye sockets and the nose. And then there's a parking lot for tour buses down here, public transport buses down here. And there's a dumpster there. Uh, this is one of the most popular theories as to where Yeshua was crucified. Why do we know? Because this, the Gospels say that he was crucified at the place of the skull, Golgotha. And the garden tomb is right there. Yeah, thank you. But up on top, I like this theory as well. Gabe Rutledge ascribes to this theory, but it's not a big deal if you don't agree with me. So it's okay. We can still be friends. <laughs> but up on top here is a cemetery. Not just any cemetery, but a Muslim cemetery. I, I think the Muslims believe that this was the place where the Messiah was crucified as well. And they put a cemetery there on purpose, just like they did out front of the Eastern Gate, because they know that the Messiah has come through the Eastern Gate. I think they did that as a direct affront to the Christian faith and put that there so that no shrines or anything could be built there. Um, they don't believe that he fully died and resurrected. Okay, so, yes. Question. Absolutely. This Golgotha, mm -hmm. is it outside? Would it have been yes. at that time outside? And the that's city? why I like that theory is because it would have been outside the, the old city okay. at the time. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, just as Bob pointed out, well, here's, here's a painting of what it may have looked like during his, his time. So you see the place of the skull here, you see the skull in the rock. And uh, just over here off the, the painting would be a, an ancient tomb, which you can go to to this day. But maybe the crucifixions happened up here. I think they more than likely happened up here because the Romans like to make executions and crucifixions a very public spectacle. So maybe they would have been more visible up here. But you know what, guys? Ultimately, at the end of the day, if we were really supposed to know the exact place of his crucifixion, it would say it. We'd have like GPS coordinates for it and all that kind of stuff. It's really not a salvific issue. It's interesting. It's intriguing. But it's not something that we should break off fellowship with one another over, right? Can we all get a big amen on that? Amen. Well, the Golgotha is over there through those trees. About, I don't know, 500 feet or so that direction. Really close. This right here is a tomb. And the tomb matches a description to the T of the tomb that Yeshua's body would have been laid in. It's a tomb that would have been reserved for someone who is wealthy, like Joseph of Arimathea. And it's a tomb that has a track in front of it for a very big stone to be rolled back and forth. And people don't know. I mean, they admit when you walk into the garden tomb there in the north of the city, they admit, we don't know for certain that this is a tomb, but it seems to be really good... Um, possible match. And right now, it's a botanical garden. There's all kinds of different plants growing in here, and you can go in there. Um, but I, I like this theory. Um, 
I, I like it because it's so well preserved. And if you've ever been in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, it's just kind of like icky inside. And it's replete with idolatry and paganism and stuff. And there's all kinds of just icky stuff in there. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel good. Um, and I like how well this is preserved. That doesn't make it right. It just makes me like it more. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, it's a really beautiful spot, a very serene spot. And I think it's managed, if anybody knows and can correct me, I think it's managed by the Church of England. Yeah. Is that right? Okay. The Church of England manages the garden tomb. And they've kept it in really good, pristine condition like it is right now. So, anyways, this is uh, an aerial view. I just took a satellite on Google. So here is, you guys remember the Temple Mount, the 36-acre plateau? This is it right there. You can see the outline of it. On top of that is the, uh, the Dome of the Rock, where they believe Muhammad ascended into heaven. This is the third holiest site in all of Islam. It was, and still is, I should say, the first holiest site in all of the Jewish faith. This is the Alaska Mosque here. So if you travel out north, the garden tomb is right there. The garden tomb is right there, and Golgotha is right there. You see how close they are. It's right there north of the city. And the old city is right here. It kind of comes around and, and comes down this way. The old city. This is the Arab quarter right here. That is now the modern-day Arab quarter. Okay, and then you have the Damascus Gate is right there. But yeah, it's just it's right outside the city gates there. But I like that theory. But I wanted to give you a little bit of geography lesson. Today, we're going to read Mark 16, obviously, and a little bit of Matthew 28. And we're going to put the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua on trial. Because in this day and age, everyone is questioning every tenet of our faith. Even those within our faith are saying, well, maybe this didn't happen on a literal level. Liberal theologians would say, maybe this was just a figurative thing. Or maybe it was all hallucinations. He didn't bodily resurrect. Maybe he just spiritually resurrected. There's all kinds of nonsense that's floating around out there. Well, we're going to test that a little bit today and see if we can come up with some, some good evidence for the literal resurrection, the bodily resurrection of our Savior. Why does it matter? Because 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 to 17 says, For if the dead are not raised, then not even Messiah has been raised. And if Messiah has not been raised, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. That's big. Proving the resurrection proves for us that we are no longer in our sins. So turn with me to Mark 16. The last chapter of Mark. Mark 16. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's, it's the shortest chapter in Mark. It's only 20 verses. So when it says Shabbat was over, Miriam of Magdala... Miriam, the mother of Yaakov, and Shlomit, they bought spices in order to go and anoint Yeshua, which is like a good bookend to the garden experience in the book of Genesis. You have a woman in the garden, and uh, there she's going to see the snake crusher. Instead of being tempted by the snake, she's going to encounter the one who crushed the snake. Very early the next day, just after sunrise, they went to the tomb. And they were asking each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb for us? Then they looked up and saw that the stone, even though it was huge, had been rolled back already. 
On entering the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right, and they were dumbfounded. But he said, don't be so surprised. You're looking for Yeshua from Netzeret, who was executed on a stake. He has risen, and he's not here. Look at the place where they laid him, and go tell his disciples, especially Kepha. Why especially Kepha? Because he, he, last time we interacted with Kepha, with Peter, he was denying him, right? Tell, tell Peter that he is going to the Galil ahead of you. You will see him there, just as I told you, trembling but ecstatic. They went out and they fled from the tomb, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. When Yeshua rose early on Sunday, the first day of the week, he appeared first to Miriam of Magdala, from whom he had expelled seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, and they were crying and mourning. But when they heard that he was alive and that she had seen him, they wouldn't believe it. And after that, Yeshua appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking in the country. That's the road to Emmaus. They went and told the others, but they didn't believe them either. Later, Yeshua appeared to the eleven as they were eating, and he reproached them for their lack of trust and spiritual insensitivity and not having believed those who had seen him after he had risen. Then he said to them, as you go throughout the world, proclaim the good news to all creation. Whoever trusts and is immersed will be saved. Whoever does not trust will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who do trust in my name. They will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will not be injured if they handle snakes or drink poison. They will heal the sick by laying hands on them. So then, after he had spoken to them, the Lord Yeshua was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. That's quoting Psalm 110, verse one. And they went out and proclaimed everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the message by the accompanying signs. Let's go and look at the parallel of this in Matthew chapter 28. So flip over to Matthew 28. So Matthew, Mark, Matthew 28. I like to kind of compare these synoptic gospels a little bit. See Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to read 10 verses here, 1 through 10. After Shabbat, as the next day was dawning, Miriam of Magdala and the other Miriam went to see the grave. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake. It's an extra detail, huh? For an angel of Adonai came down from heaven, rolled the stone away, and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so terrified at him, they trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Don't be afraid. I know you are looking for Yeshua, who was executed on the stake. He's not here. Because he has been raised, just as he said. Come and look at the place where he laid. Then go quickly and tell the Talmudim. He has been raised from the dead, and now he's going into the Galil ahead of you. You will see him there. Now I have told you. In verse 8. So they left the tomb quickly, frightened, yet filled with joy. And they ran to give the news to the Talmudim, the disciples. Suddenly Yeshua met them and said, Shalom. They came up and took hold of his feet, and they fell down in front of him. Then Yeshua said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to the Galil, and they will see me there. So, in order to prove the resurrection of the Messiah, we have a historical event, right? We, many in this room said that that's the most historical, the most cataclysmic event in all of human history. Right there, we just read about it. How do we prove that? Do we just use the Bible? Can we just read the Bible to someone and say, hey, this is what happened? We could. Would that hold up in court? No. 
No, I don't think it would. Here's what we need, and here's what a judge in a courtroom needs in order to make a decision. The judge wants early eyewitness testimony. Okay, were you there? Were you there when it happened? Did you see it with your own eyes? Right, you can't come five years later and say, I was there, I saw it. Right, and it gets a little bit fuzzy in your brain. You want early eyewitness testimony. We want multiple testimony in our courtroom. Were there multiple eyewitnesses to the crime? Yes, question. There was um, also a bunch of people that were raised from the dead mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that were walking around the yeah. city yep. when he rose from the dead. You're absolutely right. Yep. So they were also eyewitnesses, or they were witnesses to the fact that something amazing had happened. Yeah, you're right. Number three, the judge would like to have testimony that is objective. In other words, testimony by someone who doesn't have a vested interest in someone being guilty or not guilty or even hostile testimony. That's always good too. The judge is looking for forensic testimony. What kind of caliber of a shell, you know, a bullet casing is on the ground right there? Does it match the gun that he bought six months ago, right? We're looking for tangible, physical evidence. Is there blood on that thing, right? There's like forensic testimony. And then if bonus, if time permits, I'm gonna share with you some prophetic testimony. Where does in the Bible it say that Messiah not only had to die, but had to raise from the dead. Not only raise from the dead, but raise the, from the dead on the third day. Can we get there? So, let's talk about early eyewitness testimony. Did you know that there's 30,000 plus ancient written records and testimonies of the New Testament? For instance, Homer, his Iliad and the Odyssey... How many manuscripts do you think we have? Early manuscripts do we think we have of Omer's Iliad and the Odyssey? 643. In all of those, the oldest we can get is 900 years post the time when he would have written it. But we all accept Omer's Iliad and the Odyssey as being, yeah, it's definitely written by him, right? All historians and, and, and you know, literary teachers in, in high schools, except, yeah, that's definitely written by Omer. We don't question that. We only have 643 manuscripts, and the oldest we have is 900 years older than when he would have written it. What about this? Um, the, the Annals of Caesar. We have several dozen manuscripts of the Annals of Caesar, but they're all written a thousand years after when he actually lived. That's the oldest manuscripts we have of the Annals of Caesar. But all historians say, yeah, that's definitely, that was written by Caesar. We accept all those events as historical. We have 30,000 plus manuscripts of the New Testament. The Gospels, Paul's letters. But what about the date? The core of the Gospels was in circulation several weeks after his death, after his burial, and after his resurrection. The Gospels, whether written or verbally transmitted were in circulation well within the first 20 to 30 years of Yeshua's life, death, and resurrection. Yet they're highly scrutinized for some reason and question as whether or not they're legitimate and trustworthy. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7 says, this is a really important verse in Creed for church and, and uh, biblical historians. Paul says, by this gospel you are saved. Now, Paul's writing this in the year 33 to 35 AD, less than a couple years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua. Paul is writing this. He says, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise, 
you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as the first importance. That Messiah died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Kepha, to Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. So about this passage... I'm going to quote to you from, from uh, some, some secular uh, commentators here. He says that the earliest record of these appearances is to be found in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7. Just read that to you. A tradition that Paul received after his apostolic call, certainly not later than his visit to Jerusalem in 35 CE, when he saw Peter and James, who, like him, were recipients of the appearances. In other words, what we're saying, we're reading a historical document written by Paul, the Pharisee, that, hey, just two years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah, I'm passing this on. I, just two years old. That is really, really new. Here's another one. This is from an atheist New Testament professor. The elements in the tradition that I just read to you are to be dated to the first two years after the crucifixion of Jesus, not later than three years. The formation of the appearance traditions mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, falls into the time between 30 and 33. So we have early eyewitness, don't we? Pretty compelling. Here's another one. Non-Christian scholar, uh, founder of the Jesus Seminar. The conviction that Jesus had risen from the dead had already taken root by the time Paul was converted in 33 CE. On the assumption that Jesus died about 30, the time for development was thus two or three years at most. Very early, isn't it? So we can't say, oh, you know, these things are written like 50 years after. And, you know, even if we do have 30,000 manuscripts, it's still really old. No, these things, these eyewitness accounts are just shy of two years old. That's very, very compelling. Here's the earliest um, manuscript we have of the New Testament. This is um, the book, from the book of John. Of the 30,000 ancient copies, fragments, portions of the New Testament... This is the earliest we have. This actually dates to the, uh, I believe, the second century, the first half of the second century. I think this puts it at 150 CE. So 150 years, we have a document remaining, uh, albeit a small piece of a document remaining from the book of John that is just 150 years after. And talk about the annals of, of Caesar, a thousand years old, yet we completely attribute them to Caesar. Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, 900 years old. 643 copies, 900 years old. Yet, we don't question that. Here we have 150 years after that. We still have documents from that time. That's pretty compelling. So we have early, we have multiple eyewitnesses. We have Paul the Pharisee, a fierce persecutor of the believers, and the sect known as the Way, claiming to have encountered the risen Messiah just two years after the event. And then in Acts 1-3, it says, During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom. So we have 500 plus people seeing him and writing about it. And we have documentation of that no less than three years post that event. So that's our multiple testimony. What about 
hostile testimony or objective testimony. So can we find someone in history who wasn't part of the sect known as the way, wasn't part of this movement, didn't have a vested interest in any of this happening, yet they write about it happening? The answer is yes. And you guys mentioned Josephus, very good. The first century historian, Jewish historian, so potentially hostile towards the faith. Flavius Josephus, he lived 37 to 100. In his classic work, Antiquities of the Jews, he verifies not only the extensive, uh, the ex I'm sorry, the existence of Jesus, but that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate. Here, I'm going to read to you from his book, Antiquities of the Jews. He says, now there was about this time Yeshua, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the non-Jews. He was the Messiah. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again on the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold. And these 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day. Josephus actually later confirms another significant event that happened in 62. He talks about when the Sanhedrin assembled, they brought before them the brother of Yeshua, who was called the Messiah, whose name was James, and ultimately handed over to be executed. So Josephus, someone who is objective and potentially hostile to the faith, attests to, what does he attest to? That Yeshua was, existed, first of all, that he performed many signs and wonders, that he was a wise man, if it's lawful to call him a man, he says, that he died at the hands of Pilate, was crucified, he rose again on the third day, and he attests to the fact that he was the Messiah. That is objective and potentially hostile testimony that we put before the judge. Can we find more? The Roman historian Tacitus, he was a senator, he refers to Yeshua, his execution by Pontius Pilate. And the existence of early Christians in Rome in his final work. And this final work was written in one, uh, AD 116. He says the following, Tacitus says the following. But of all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor and the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the con conflagration was the result of an order. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and... The, and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class that was hated for their abominations called the Christians. He's talking about, he put the blame of the Roman fire in 64 on the Christians. He says, um, they were the Christians from whom the name, had, uh, from Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So there he's attesting to uh, Yeshua being killed by Pontius Pilate or tried by Pontius Pilate and most mischievous superstitions thus checked for the moment again broke out not only in Judea the first source of evil but even in Rome where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular accordingly an arrest was made of all who pleaded guilty then upon their information an immense multitude was convicted not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind 
mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn apart by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed, or doomed to the flames and burnt, to serve as a nightly illumination when the daylight would expire. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or stood aloft on a car. Hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion, for it was not, as it seemed, for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty that the Christians were being destroyed. So there we have it. We have hostile and objective testimony. One more of this category, that's Suetonius, another Roman historian who lived between 69 AD and 122 AD. He mentions early Christians and Yeshua of Nazareth in his work, The Lives of the Twelve Caesars. One passage in the biography of the emperor Claudius Divius uh, refers to agitations in the Roman Jewish community and the expulsion of Jews from Rome by Claudius during his reign in 41, which lines up perfectly which, uh, with the expulsion mentioned in the book of Acts in chapter 18, chapter 18 verse 2, which we'll get to in about 20 weeks. <laughs> All right, so we've got early eyewitness history. We've got multiple eyewitnesses. We've got hostile and objective testimony. What's the last one we need? Forensic testimony. Can we look at the ground? Can we dig in the dirt? Can we study astrological signs and stuff and determine that yes, their events that happened at the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua definitely took place? The answer is yes. There's a new film that just came out called The Christ Quake. How many of you know that the Dead Sea is actually retreating? It's evaporating away, it's going away. Did you know that? By, by, by alarming rate. And it's exposing layers of rock that we otherwise would not be able to see. And this is affording us this amazing opportunity, archaeologists, amazing opportunity. Well, this pastor and archaeologist and filmmaker, Rick Larson, he found striations in rock layers only recently exposed due to the retreating shoreline of the Dead Sea that indicate major seismic activity dating to around the 30s AD. Like here in the picture, you can see them right there. Found these all over the place. Also, Jefferson Williams and Marcus Schwab wrote a 2011 article entitled An Early First Century Earthquake in the Dead Sea. This article examines a report in the 27th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament that an earthquake was felt in Jerusalem on the day of the crucifixion of Yeshua of Nazareth. We have tabulated, he said, a varved chronology from a core in Ein Gedi on the western shore of the Dead Sea between deformed sediments due to a widespread earthquake in the year around, uh, in or around the year 31 and deformed sediments due to an early first century earthquake. The early first century seismic event has been tentatively assigned a date of 31 with an accuracy of five plus or minus years. So there we have more objective uh, testimony, but we have forensic testimony, don't we? So I think we're good on time. Do you guys want to go into prophetic testimony? So we've covered so far, we've covered uh, early eyewitness testimony. A judge is looking for multiple eyewitness testimony. A judge is going to look for hostile or objective testimony. And then the judge is going to look for forensic testimony. We've covered all those. Well, what about prophetic testimony? Can we find in the Bible where it says, 
You know, the Messiah had to come. He had to suffer. He had to die. He had to be buried. He had to resurrect. Not only did he have to resurrect, but he had to resurrect on the third day. Can we find that? It's important because Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 5, 55, but what I received, remember that's that, that early thing I, I read to you. He said that, that Christ died for our sins. How? According to the scriptures. Remember, there's no New Testament as Paul is writing this. What are the scriptures? It's the Tanakh. It's the Hebrew Bible, right? That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So it's an extra level, extra layer of testimony and validity to our belief that if we can find that the Bible, let's say 500 to 1,000 years prior to this event, prophesied this event would take place. Hmm, that'd be pretty significant. Here, Matthew 16, Yeshua says, from that time on, Yeshua began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Why? And that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Why must he? Why is it so specific? Well, we just read earlier this morning in the Amidah. You guys remember the Amidah? I think I have it here. Oh, it's really small. I'm going to read. You guys already know this. You've seen it. You just sang it a few minutes ago. It goes, Ata gibor le'olam Adonai. So in other words, uh, blessed are you, Lord our God, who, who revives the dead and who is mighty to save. So look at this. This is a different version of it. He brings a great Lehoshia. Look, there you have the, the name of Yeshua right there in rearranged order. But what else does he do? So he sustains the living in love and he revives the dead with great mercy. Racham, mercy. He somek noflim. He upholds the falling. Verofei cholim. He heals the sick. Umatir asurim. And he, what? Sets free the prisoners. Yeah. He's, he's going to keep faith with those that are asleep in the dust. And then it says, Who is like you, mighty God? Who, who can compare to you? A king. A king who, who kills, but then brings to life. Yeshua. There is the key. He kills and he brings to life, and by doing so, makes Yeshua sprout. He causes, we read that in English, don't we? He makes salvation sprout. But if you read it in the original language, literally it's saying he, he causes death, and then he brings back to life, and in doing so, makes, there's the name of Yeshua right there. He makes Yeshua umatzmiach. He makes Yeshua sprout forth. There we have in the Amidah. Like, that's been prayed for thousands of years. But where does it come from? It comes from Isaiah 45, verse 8. You heavens above rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. And let Yeshua spring up. Let righteousness flourish within it. I, the Lord, have created it. That's what that prayer is inspired off of. This word samach, you see the word umatzmiach uh, right there. You see the word samach. That's the, that's the word branch or sprout. 
It comes from Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a righteous samach, a righteous branch of the line of David. He will be a king that shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Also, it's used in Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch, a samach, from his roots that shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, just like it is an immersion, right? It will rest upon him, spirit of wisdom, a spirit of understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. See, this samach, this branch, became a code word, a title for the coming Mashiach. The Mashiach would be called a samach, a righteous branch, a shoot that pops out of the ground. Literally, but also figuratively, that he resurrects. Isn't um, Netzer also? Yes, and it's used here that there sh- a shoot town. is a Netzer, yeah. Yeah, thank you. In Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 2, there shall, there shall come forth a netzer from the stump of Jesse, a samach from the root shall he bear. So a netzer is like a, if you guys ever chop down, I have Chinese privet in my backyard, and I, I used to chop them down with a chainsaw, and then I would take glyphosate or Roundup and pour it on the stump a little bit to kill the, the root. Well, those things are so hardy. It, it's like six months later, you go out there, and like six feet away from the root, the stump where you, where you chop it down, there'd be a netzer popping up out of the ground. Well, I thought I killed that, right? Mm-hmm. It's like six months later, the thing now shoots up out of the ground like a, like a netzer. Well, Yeshua, it's important that he was raised in netzeret, which is the place of the shoot. Because he is the netzer and he is the samach. So there we have some prophetic stuff, but there's more. Psalm 2 introduces us to the Messiah of God and Psalm 40 tells of his incarnation. Which, Psalms, by the way, is the book that Yeshua quoted from the most. Psalm 22, which Adrian taught on last week, it details his agony on the cross. And he says, right? Ali, Ali, lamas bachmini. Why have, why, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he says, but I am just a worm. But then Psalm 16 rejoices at his resurrection. Let me read it to you. Psalm 16:10. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Sound familiar? It says, nor will you let your chasid see decay. That word chasid comes from the one uh, like, like chesed, loving kindness. That's where uh, there's a whole sect of Judaism called the chasidim, chasidic, chasidic, you ever heard of chasidic Jews? Yeah. Yeah, that's the, that's the idea. But he says, you will not let your chasid see decay. So it's interesting. In the book of Psalms, we have the gospel. We have the death. We have, incar- I'm sorry, we have the incarnation. We have the death. We have burial. We have the resurrection of the Messiah in the book of Psalms. The apostles read Psalm 16 and understood it that way. Here in Acts 2, Peter is going to quote from Psalm 16. He says... That David wrote about him. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope. In hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. 
So Peter is looking at Psalm 16 and he's saying, ah, that's talking about the Messiah having to be resurrected from the dead. And I'm going to quote it right now in Acts 2. They do it again in Acts 13. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you Gentiles who fear God, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and the rulers did not recognize Yeshua, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets and are read every Sabbath. And though they found no ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried all out that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he was seen by those who had accompanied him from the Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. And now we proclaim to you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising him up. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. In fact, God raised him from the dead, never to see decay, as he also said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. He's quoting Isaiah 55. So also he said in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep and he died. He was buried with his fathers and his body saw decay. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. In other words, what Peter is doing here is he's saying, just in case you're confused, these Psalms are not talking about David's body seeing decay. David saw decay. Messiah did not. Psalm 16 is all about the Mashiach, the Messiah, who would rise from the dead. So the apostles, the, the, early, the early founders of our faith, believed that Psalm 16 was talking about the resurrection. John 12, 24 through 26 says, I think I got behind my slides here. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. So Yeshua knows he must sprout. He's saying this thing, like if a seed dies, goes in the ground, it'll produce more seeds. When he says this, he's, he's talking about his body. Paul echoes this concept. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 42, what is sown in the earth is subject to decay. What rises, however, is incorruptible. So Yeshua is likening his body to what? A seed. And according to the Amidah, that seed, that salvation must do what? Sprout. And then that sprout produces more what? Who are those more seeds? Us. And then we must do what? Yeah, we have to die. But then what? We will be put in the ground. And we will be raised to life. Amen. But where's the third day? Where's the third day? Remember we said he had to be buried. The prophet said he had to be, he had to be uh, put in the ground. But what about the third day? I didn't hear anything about the third day in the Psalms, did you? Well, that's a little bit harder to find explicitly mentioned. But there's a lot of instances where the third day alludes to something happening. For instance, in Genesis 22, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, his son Isaac. And he, 
went to the place which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So in other words, remember, we talk about that being the typology of Messiah, right? There was a lamb whose horns were caught in the thicket, and that was a picture of Messiah substituting himself, right? And it's like, it's like Isaac was resurrected from the dead that day. He was good for dead, right? Abraham was going to be obedient. But then God provided a substitution. On the third day, he raised. He, Isaac regained his life on the third day, we could say. It's also the thicket is a picture of sin. Too. Yeah, yeah. He was caught in the sins of the world. Taking on the sins. You remember in Exodus 19 that God descended on Mount Sinai on which day? The third day. The regathering of God's people from the Babylonian exile is sometimes described as like a resurrection. And Hosea 6.2 describes the time frame of this resurrection. Hosea 6.2, Hosea 6.1-2 I should say. Come, let's return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down that he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. That's not all. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. What about the saving of Jonah? When was that over? The third day. When did Esther don her royal robes and go before the king? The third day. I'm going to submit to you that anytime you see the third day in scripture, you should think resurrection. It's like a code word for the resurrection. So what does the resurrection mean to you? What does it mean to me? Because we are plagued with this problem. All of us have this problem. We all fight that problem. We all spend lots of time and money trying to avoid that problem. And then when that problem hits one of us, we all are like, why? It's unfair. We all grapple with that problem. We all try to avoid that problem. It grieves us. And that problem is this right here. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Motemut. Die, you will die. That's that problem that we all have to grapple with. I'm going to die. How can I avoid that? What would that be like? Or so and so died. I miss them. That feels unnatural to me. It's because it is unnatural. It's the most unnatural thing we as humans can go through because it wasn't part of the original plan. So what does the resurrection mean to you and I? Well, if we keep reading in Genesis 3.15, we're given a promise, aren't we? That one would come, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. But in doing so, the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed. Remember the seed. He calls himself the seed, doesn't he? The snake crusher had to be bruised but he also expresses power and authority over the snake, doesn't he? Death is thus conquered. His resurrection means for us, guess what? I don't have to stay in that grave. My father doesn't have to stay in that grave. You don't have to stay in that grave. That's not the end of the story. You will be resurrected to newness of life and incorruptible. That's what the resurrection means to us. If... You've accepted and believed in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, as Paul calls. Paul defines the gospel explicitly for us right there. 
The, the, the resurrection means for us that he secured for us a place in that resurrection that is to come. He was the first fruits for those who are born again in him and believe. Death has no hold on us. So are you living that way? Or are you clinging so tightly to this life? You can't let go. Man, I, I, I dread that day. Obviously, we don't want to do stupid things. We don't want to live unhealthily. But some of the happiest people you will ever meet in this, in this life are those who know and have a firm belief in the resurrection of the dead. They're like, man, when he takes me, he takes me. Where he calls me, though, I'll go. The resurrection proves that God has not abandoned his people. It means that not only our life, but our deaths and any suffering in between mean something. It means when we put our faith and trust in him and that victory over death, we in a way die. We have to die as well and are born again. Has that happened to you? I think we make a mistake sometimes in the messianic community and messianic movement of putting a lot of emphasis on like Torah portions, kosher, Shabbat, this stuff, that stuff, Hebrew, that, all that's great, fine, dandy. But we forget the key central message. Have you died to yourself? Have you been born again into the reality of what Messiah did for us? That's the starting point. Amen. The resurrection means that just as he predicted his death and resurrection, so too he foretold of a coming judgment and that will happen. You catch me? He foretold his death, burial, and resurrection. That came to pass. What else does he foretell? A coming judgment. You think that will come to pass? Amen. Yes, it will. I will be judged. You will be judged. The world will be judged. So it all comes down to, do we believe? Do we literally believe that that tomb is empty? Do we literally believe that he conquered the death, that he conquered the grave? And how does that affect how you live and act and teach and parents and husband or wife? Let's pray, and then we'll have a little bit of time for Q&A. Abba Father, we thank you that Yeshua died and was buried like a seed, but sprouted. We thank you that we have assurance to be a part of the resurrection. And I thank you so much that it is not by anything that I've done or accomplished, but by your grace and your love that this has made possible for me. Like in the song we sung, though I be as vile as that thief, your grace is sufficient for me. And I ask that there's anyone in this room who has not accepted this testimony, has not believed, has not been born again, that they'll do so today. That they'll profess faith and assurance in his death, burial, and resurrection. I pray all this in our Savior's precious name. Amen. Well, guys, what questions do you have? Comments do you have? Jaden, you have a question? No? Okay. We'll, we'll talk later. We'll talk later. All right. Yeah, it's here. First of all, great um, holistic look at the resurrection. Yes. Thank you. Um, 
As for the Josephus clone, have you heard people question whether that was... I've, I've heard that people claim that that was added into the text of Josephus. I mean, I, I yeah. believe it's genuine. Genuine, yeah. So he's asking, um, he's asking, have we heard? Have I heard any theories that the text of Josephus that I read has been uh, uh, manipulated by the Christian movement? Um, and I don't have a reason to believe that. Um, for instance, uh, in the 500s, um, the the Catholic Church, as it was kind of emerging. Uh, not only banned, but also began to manipulate and censor the Talmud, uh, the, the um, I believe the Babylonian Talmud, yet that uh, remained pretty unscathed despite that. Um, I, don't, I don't have any reason to believe that Josephus' works were edited, but yeah, I have heard that though, yeah. But it demands, like, the, it, what is it saying? They bear the burden of proof, and I don't see the proof. But, oh, thank you. Any other questions? Very good question. Thank you. Yeah, Howard. Okay. Uh, have you read much about uh, the, the Mark? Is the only one who he wrote the first eight verses of that last chapter in the balance? Probably written by someone else. Yes. Yeah. Um, and actually, I was having a conversation with a PhD religion, a professor of religion and world religions, and that was one of the things he brought up to me was like, "Hey, don't you realize that the the last." lines of Mark were, were, were written after the fact just to give it credibility. And I have heard that, um, that Mark perhaps didn't write those last few verses of Mark, um, that they don't appear in some of the earliest manuscripts. Uh, there's, there's some good, viable arguments against that, that perhaps that, um, they just, there were older manuscripts of Mark that included that, but they didn't. They, they didn't make it into the circulation or, or that, yeah, maybe someone came along and based on Luke's account, Matthew's account, amended that to the end of the book of Mark. That, that so, wrong. yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, I've had heard, uh, you know, just recently, actually, a, a PhD guy I was conversing with brought that up to me. He, he doesn't believe the, the validity of the resurrection whatsoever, but that was one of the bullets that he shot at me, one of the arrows he shot at me was that, that issue right there. But yeah, Tom. Um, Tommy, I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard that on the fourth day, that's when the body starts to decay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Interesting. She said, I've heard that on the fourth day, that's when the body begins to break down and decay. And that's why it had to be by the third day. Yeah, it was the third day that he raised Lazarus. Yeah, Brian. Uh, I like the uh, prophetic picture um, in John 20, verse 11 of the atonement cover. Um, it says, But Mary stood outside crying, and as she cried, she bent down and peered into the tomb. And she saw two angels um, in white sitting where the body of Yeshua had been, one at the head and one at the feet. So mm. the oh, yes. That's really on the mercy seat, yeah. I'll repeat for those who couldn't hear. Brian said, when you see in John that these two angels are in the tomb, one at the head and one at the feet, they're making, in a sense, uh, a picture of what the ark cover would have looked like of the, the uh, ark of the covenant with the cherubim over it. Um, it's interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that. Thank you very much. Brenda? To me, it's 
Yeah. Yeah, I'll repeat what you said. She said, for me, a source of validity to believe the Gospels is how much it is attacked. Um, yeah. One thing I didn't bring up, too, the source of validity would be how many of the people who proclaimed that message took it to their graves. So when someone is trying to propagate a lie, they rarely ever die for that lie. But when someone really firmly believes something, they're willing to die for it. And how many of those people die for that fact, right? That's very important. Suzanne? There were two things I learned a long time ago, but I, I only remember bits of it now, but maybe you also know about this. One was when we went on tour to Israel, and in Caesarea, there was a rock that had just been, an engraved rock that had been discovered, and it put Pontius Pilate, it was the first... Uh, evidence. Evidence. Archaeological. And that put Pontius Pilate there at that time, and mm. it was really cool. Yeah. That was the first thing. And then the second thing was something about the grave cloth that would have been on Yeshua, yeah. but it wasn't just a regular grave cloth. It was actually like a form of tallit or something. And a Jewish man of that day had a certain way that they would have folded it, and this is what they found. I, mm. you know, yeah, it's called the Shroud of Turin, I believe. Well, no, this oh, is the different? Shroud of Turin. This oh, okay. is just talking about, like, possibly a, the, his talit that okay. he had left behind Interesting. and had folded it a certain way. Okay, I'm not familiar um, with that. Interesting. Uh, yeah, Kara. Yeah, that's a major tenet. She, she's basically saying, um, the, Mark 16 says, he who believes and is immersed will be saved. Uh, that is a major tenet, for instance, of some, some denominations in Christianity, that you have to be immersed in water, and that is a part of the salvation process. Um, yeah, you brought up a good point. What about the thief on the cross when he says, today you'll be with me in paradise? Um, that throws a wrench into those ideas. Now, immersion in water is crucial. It is important, I believe. It's a very, very big part of our faith. But if you cannot be immersed in water, that doesn't mean that your salvation is somehow uh, unsatisfied or something or partial. I believe that's erroneous. But I believe if that thief could have gotten off the cross, he probably would have soon thereafter been immersed in water. But yeah, yeah. Did you have a question? Oh, I. Yeah, Stacy. She could see the tomb from the car. She split off and went and told 
Peter and James who were separate and the other disciples and then those women went and told so it, it, it does such a good job mm. of leaving these together and kind of ironing out things that could seem like contradictions yeah. and they present um, a timeline that they say this could this is one possibility it was such a good article and, um. Um, until you like read you know all the four accounts because you know, in your mind you go, wait, did it happen like this or did it happen like this? And I realized that some of the things in my mind were from, you know, like just not having read them all at the same time before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll repeat a little bit what you said. She said there's an article she read, Answers in Genesis, right? <clears throat> that does a good job of harmonizing all of those accounts together. Uh, would you do me a favor think about it? Send it to Joanne, and then she can yeah, include it in the next weekly newsletter. That'd be good. Just text her the link to it. Um, but it does a really good job of harmonizing those different accounts. So that's basically what she said. Yeah, Xavier. Uh, just a really quick piggyback off of the Mark verse. It says, he who believes and immerses will be saved, but it says, he who does not believe will be condemned, not mm-hmm. he who is not immersed. Right. Yeah. So I, to me, I, that's my observation. I could be wrong, but. Yeah, that's good. That's good. It's just a, there's nothing magical about baptism or immersion in water. It's just a, it's just a physical manifestation of what should be inwardly. So we'll take a couple more questions and Stacey, I mean. I just, I thought that the thief on the cross is like God's ultimate picture that we can do nothing, you know, other than trust. And I mean, yeah. that thief had no chance to do anything mm-hmm. at all redeeming. She's saying that the thief on the cross is the ultimate picture of grace. grace. He, he didn't do anything. He's just in his last hours of life, and yet he's given the opportunity to to be saved. And just a really neat picture of grace, how it works. Doesn't mean that we don't do. Doesn't mean that we don't obey if given the opportunity. But it means that we don't have to in order to earn our salvation. And actually, that won't earn your salvation. Any other questions or comments? We're gonna do something a little bit different unless there's any other, um, I thought it'd be fitting as we close out the book of Mark and we sing a song uh, in a little bit here after we do Kiddush uh, called uh, Anastasis. Does anyone know what the Greek word Anastasis means? <laughs> it means a resurrection. And you probably know the song as um, I cast my mind to Calvary, but we're gonna, uh, as, as a worship group comes up, we're gonna, we're going to do that, but let me uh, first, let's say the blessing over the fruit of the vine.